Before we jump into today's episode, I have some very exciting news. Nordic Naturals' number one selling fish oil is now in gummy form. If you've been listening to our podcast, you know by now just how important omega-3s are for optimizing immune function, supporting a healthy brain and heart, and above all else, keeping our cells healthy, which supports every structure and process in our bodies. However, we also know that it can be very tough to meet your omega-3 needs through diet alone. And for some people, swallowing a pill is just not very appealing. Luckily, in just two chewable gummies, you get 1,200 milligrams of omega-3s, which is our highest potency omega-3 gummy. And they're also delicious, which helps you remember to take them each day. Head to nordic.com and use the code naturallywell15 for 15% off our new Ultimate Omega Gummy Chews and start making omega-3s part of your daily routine. Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today's guest is Dr. Stephen Gundry. Dr. Gundry is the founder of Gundry MD and one of the world's top cardiothoracic surgeons and pioneers in nutrition. He has spent the last two decades studying the microbiome and now helps patients use diet and nutrition as a key form of treatment. He is the author of many New York Times bestselling books, including The Plant Paradox, The Longevity Paradox, How to Die Young at a Ripe Old Age, and The Energy Paradox, What to Do When Your Get Up and Go Has Gone Up and Gone. This year, Dr. Gundry released Unlocking the Keto Code, which offers a revolutionary new take on the keto diet that debunks common myths and shows readers how to reap the rewards of keto and less restriction. He also is the host of the top-ranking health show, The Dr. Gundry Podcast. In this episode, Dr. Gundry tells us what we got wrong about keto, how it can be beneficial, and how we can increase our longevity through mitochondrial uncoupling. Now, I know that may sound too scientific to understand, but I promise Dr. Gundry will explain it in a very basic sense. And we discuss the very foods, habits, and behaviors you can start adding into your routine today to reap the benefits. Also know that you do not have to be interested or support the keto diet to tune into this episode. In Dr. Gundry's words, if he had had his choice in the book title, it would have been The Longevity Paradox 2.0. However, if you practice the form of a keto diet or have considered it, make sure to tune in to hear what we got wrong and how you can practice it with less deprivation, more carbs, and more health benefits. Welcome, Dr. Gundry. I have been waiting for this episode, and I'm so glad we we're that we we're able to get you in because I know right now with promoting your book, there are, like we were just talking about, um, a lot of podcasts and media channels that you are on, but this is such a treat for our listeners. And having read your book in one night, Whoa. I have lots of questions, and there's so much great information there. I would you know, love to start off with why you decided to write this book. And I know, you know, just reading the title, some people who aren't interested in, let's say a keto diet or have negative thoughts about it may shy away from it. But after reading it, I really don't see it as being in like the keto category. I'm sure your publishers just thought it was a catchy title, (laughs) but it really is its own way of eating um, that I agree, you know, with majority of what you say on. And there's a lot of new and novel research in it that I would love to dive into. So if we could just start with why 
you stumbled upon writing this book, you know, after writing the plant paradox and the longevity paradox? Well, it's, I think um, if I was to uh, get a title for it, uh, it would be the longevity paradox 2.0. Um, but the, the original um, working title was the keto paradox. And when I was writing the energy paradox, my last book, um, I was trying to explain how ketones um, being in ketosis um, ketones are used by mitochondria. And I like to back up everything I write with either my own research or other people's research. So I, and I like to document that in the book. And so I'm kind of looking at the, you know, basic research um, in ketones that has been done. And I went, gee, um, this is completely 180 degrees different than what we preach about how ketones work, what they do. And, you know, yeah, this has been known about for a very long time, but nobody in the keto community is actually saying what's the research uh, does. So I actually, you know, called my publishers and I said, there's an important book here and, you know, and people need to know this. And uh, so that's how it actually got started. But you're right. I went down a rabbit hole and uh, the result is this book. And it is actually fascinating that how we got ketone and ketosis wrong, quite frankly. It's so fascinating. I would love if you can share with our listeners and um, starting just from the basics of like, what are ketones? What is ketosis? And then what did you find that we got wrong? Yeah. So uh, ketones are uh, short chain fatty acids that are actually water soluble fats. Most fats are not water soluble. Um, and they've been known about since the late 1800s. They were first discovered in Germany in people who were either fasting uh, for long periods of time and also in people who had developed type 1 diabetes, um, juvenile diabetes, who uh, were ketones were discovered as an abnormal finding in these people. And it was kind of dismissed until uh, the 1930s when it was noted that children who had seizure disorders, if they had such severe seizures that they weren't eating because they were you know, kind of out of it, their seizures went away until they started eating and then their seizures came back. And some researchers at, um, in Boston and then subsequently at the Mayo Clinic said, gee, uh, when you're starving, you make ketones, and maybe it's the ketones that are keeping these seizures at bay. Uh, and they went, well, another way to make ketones is to have people basically not eat any sugars and proteins and eat an 80% fat diet. And if you do that, your liver will produce ketones. And gosh, the ketones can get up to the brain and maybe that's what's stopping the seizures. And so sure enough, the ketogenic diet was actually coined at the Mayo Clinic uh, for treatment of childhood seizures. And it worked actually remarkably well. And this was before the days of drugs uh, for seizures. 
after dilantin and phenobarb came out and pretty much died by the wayside because as any of us with children or grandchildren now know it's very difficult to get a child to not eat carbohydrates um, it's very difficult to get an adult to not eat carbohydrates and in fact i point out in the book, there's a very good research out of the University of Sydney in Australia, that all animals, including humans, have an innate drive to find carbohydrates. And going against that innate drive is why 60% of people who try a ketogenic diet give up after a month, uh, because it's just, you can't fight nature, I guess. So, um, a lot of research was subsequently done in the 70s and 80s, 90s, uh, both at the NIH uh, by Dr. Richard Beach and at Harvard by Dr. George Cahill, looking at how ketones work in human beings. And lo and behold, they found that uh, even at full ketosis, only 30% of our energy needs can be met by ketones, uh, despite being in full ketosis. Uh, the other fascinating thing is that even at full ketosis, the brain can only get 60 to maximum 70% of its energy needs met by ketones, and the rest has to be from sugar. So that totally contrary to people saying, well, ketones are the world's greatest fuel. They're the perfect fuel. We should be running on ketones all the time. Your brain loves ketones. Um, and this is all documented at prestigious institutions in human beings. And I'm going, well, what the heck? You know, where'd all this silly stuff come from? So if ketones aren't the world's greatest fuel, uh, then we know they definitely have some benefits, uh, including weight loss. If they're not the world's greatest fuel, what are they doing? And that's where um, I start talking about ketones are signaling molecules. And they tell our mitochondria, the little energy producing organelles in all our cells, um, what to do. And what they tell them to do is hopefully in the next thing we're going to talk about. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, this new science that you're presenting and we'll get into what is the uncoupling of mitochondria, but I'd love for you when you go over that, Dr. Gundry to really, cause right. We all want to know, like we can learn the science behind everything. And I've learned this with clients. I can tell them all the science, but if I don't tell them why they're doing it, um, or the benefits to it, there's no behavior change. So I'd love for you also to dive into, these new benefits that you'll see, um, with kind of this new way of using certain aspects of keto, which we'll dive into later, like what to eat and things like that. But what is uncoupling of mitochondria and what are those added benefits? Yeah. So, um, believe it or not, mitochondria, uh, and I have a good time in the book talking about the Mito Club, which is the the hippest, uh, you know, thirty something club in town where uh, all the singles go to couple up. And in mitochondria, 
mitochondria's job is to couple oxygen molecules with hydrogen molecules, protons, uh, to, and in those coupling and joining them together, you produce ATP, our energy currency. Now, coupling in mitochondria is very hard work. It's very damaging to mitochondria. And I have a good time explaining why that's so much fun, but also damaging in, in the book. So interestingly enough, uh, creating ATP is almost like a pressure cooker. There is intense pressure in these mitochondria to kind of fuse oxygen and protons together. And just like a pressure cooker, there ought to be a relief valve to blow off steam to prevent the pressure cooker from exploding. And interestingly enough, we have relief valves, emergency exits in our mitochondria to prevent this damage from oxidative stress, free radicals, reactive oxygen species from damaging our mitochondria. And we literally throw calories out the side doors of mitochondria. And so we uncouple oxygen and protons from making ATP. And we do this, believe it or not, all the time. At rest, 30% of all the calories we eat that enter into the mitochondria to make energy are thrown out these side doors, uncoupled from making energy by what are called uncoupling proteins. And there's been discovered five different emergency exits in mitochondria, uh, uh, you know, controlled by these uncoupling proteins. So just at rest, we waste 30% of energy. Now we do that for a number of reasons. Number one, to not damage the mitochondria, pop off pressure. But number two, it actually produces heat. And one of the fun aha moments of this book uh, as you know, I have a, a supplement and food company, Gundry MD, and I use a lot of thermogenic compounds in some of my uh, formulas. And they're known to be thermogenic compounds, heat generating compounds. And nobody knew why they generate heat, uh, but as people will learn in the book, they generate heat by actually uncoupling mitochondria in and of themselves. And we'll get to that. So uh, it turns out that ketones are one of the first discoveries of mitochondrial uncoupling. Now, what's so weird about that is I've taught and I've, I've had a ketogenic diet version in my clinics for 20 years. And I've taught along with everybody else that ketosis, a ketogenic diet, makes you an efficient fat burner. It turbocharges, supercharges your, your mitochondria. So they eke out every last ounce of you know, energy out of every last calorie because originally ketones came when you were starving. So it makes sense. If you're starving, you've got to save every last little calorie and get every last you know, bit of energy out of it. It turns out it's exactly the opposite. And 
my eyes were opened from a paper written in 2000 by a researcher by the name of Martin Brand. Now, the paper is very simple. The paper is called Uncouple to Survive. And in it, he argues, uh, and he then goes on to prove, that if you're starving to death, then the only thing worth saving is your mitochondria. Because if your mitochondria don't make it, guess what? <laughs> you don't make it. And who cares about your muscles, their energy hungry, you know, slobs, who cares about anything else? Mitochondria should save themselves at all costs. And so what he proposed is that ketones tell mitochondria that you're starving to death and to protect yourself at all costs. And the way you do that is to protect yourself from harm by opening up all these emergency exits and uncoupling even more waste calories. Now you go, well, but, but, but you're starving to death. Why would you waste calories? Well, the second thing ketones do is not only to tell mitochondria not to work so hard to protect yourself, but to actually make more of your cells to share the workload. Now, Anyone who's read my books know, and you know, that mitochondria are ancient engulfed bacteria that carry their own DNA. And they can divide uh, without the cell they're living in uh, dividing. So they can make more mitochondria at any time within a cell. So one of the stimuluses to make more mitochondria are ketones. Now, here's why. Now, let's suppose we have a dog sled and we have one dog and that dog can pull the sled, not very fast, uh, and the dog will get pretty tired. But if we added six dogs to the dog sled instead of one, you'll go a lot farther, you'll go a lot faster. Each dog would have to do a sixth of the work that the one dog would. But there's one consequence. Six dogs eat a lot more food than one dog. So what mitochondria do is they make more of themselves. They have much less work to do, but in exchange, they waste, waste calories. They burn more calories. And lo and behold, that's how a ketogenic diet produces weight loss by wasting calories and building more mitochondria to get the job done of producing ATP. And so, it's brilliant. Yeah. No, it is brilliant. And I, you know what? The one thing that keeps popping in my head, Dr. Gundry is, so it's interesting, right? That making ATP is harmful to the mitochondria, but making ATP, right? It's making, it's energy for anyone listening to it. It's making energy. So it's still, you know, it's a little baffling to me that something that is essentially right good for us, like making more energy is harmful to them. So in this, you know, when we're uncoupling more mitochondria and we'll get into how you do that, is there a negative side effect to making less energy or no, because we're making more mitochondria, like you just said? Correct. Got it. Making more mitochondria. Each one is making less energy than it was. So it's just more efficient. So it's actually, in the end, it's more efficient. Each mm. mitochondria is harmed less. Now, the, the ultimate 
consequence, which was shown with this compound that was discovered in World War I called 2,4-dinitrophenol, DNP. Um, DNP, um, and this is actually a good place to talk about that. Um, during World War I, it was noted that munition factory workers in France and Germany who were making artillery shells um, were incredibly skinny despite eating tons of food. They couldn't keep weight on and they were always running a temperature and nobody knew why until the, the 1920s when it was discovered that one of the compounds used in manufacturing uh, munitions was what's called 2,4-dinitrophenol. Remember that word phenol, folks. We'll come back to phenol in a minute. It was discovered that this compound uh, was thermogenic. It actually increased these people's basal metabolic rate. They burned oxygen faster. And that's why they were losing so much weight. A couple of researchers at Stanford in 1930 said, hey, this could be a great weight loss product because you just take it and you just start burning through the calories. And so they actually started writing prescriptions for DNP. And it was a miracle weight loss drug. A little dose of DNP, you would lose a pound a week. At a higher dose of DNP, you would get this, lose five pounds per week. I mean, wow, talk about a miracle. And over 100,000 prescriptions were written in the U.S. alone in the early 1930s as a weight loss drug. And it was miraculous, except the more people took, the more higher temperature they ran. They started having thyroid issues. They developed cataracts. And this was before cataract surgery. And as I joke, can you imagine you want to look at how well you look in your skinny dress and you can't see yourself in the mirror? That's a bummer. And then at extreme doses, people died. And you go, well, wait a minute, how'd they die? Well, they uncoupled their mitochondria so much that they literally could not produce enough ATP to stay alive. And so... Uh, the FDA uh, in 1938 banned DNP for sale in the United States. Uh, it's still used on the dark web for bodybuilders wanting to get cut. Um, anyhow, but it's a really slippery slope. And as I talk about in the book, you know, these things, these uncoupling compounds, a little dab will do you. Um, you really want to find the Goldilocks spot where. Not too little, not too much, just right is, is where we're going to get the maximum benefit. Subsequently, in 1978, it was discovered that DNP was the first oral uh, uncoupling compound that inadvertently had been used for weight loss. So interesting. Oh my gosh. Right now I'm thinking about like a world where people had a drug or they were losing five pounds a week would be a very dangerous world because nobody would be caring what they're eating. Um, exactly. But I'm, I'm curious besides weight loss, 
what are some of the other benefits of, you know, we talk about uncoupling mitochondria, but just producing more mitochondria. And like we were talking about before, keeping your mitochondria healthy. Well, that's what's so exciting. And, and Martin Brand's research uh, showed that if you look at super old people who are thriving, people who are 105 years old, they have the most uncoupled mitochondria of, of anybody. So you go, wait a minute, you know, maybe this uncoupling idea is a pretty good idea, particularly if we look at these super old folks and they have the most uncoupled mitochondria. And the other thing, I've got a, a little box in the book about birds. And um, it, it's kind of a fun story. There's the um, there's a metabolic theory of aging, the cost of living theory that's been popular for a hundred years. And that is in general, the faster somebody's metabolic rate is the shorter your life because simplistically burn up all your calories that are allotted and then you die. And there's some truth to that. Very small animals don't live very long and very large animals tend to live much longer. And very small animals have, in general, a very high metabolic rate, and larger animals, in general, have a lower metabolic rate, which makes sense. The problem with that theory is birds. Uh, birds are small animals, but they live incredibly long lives. Uh, a parrot can live 80 to 100 years. A hummingbird in captivity can live 10 years. I mean, this little... Why? Well, it's been discovered that birds have the most activated uncoupling proteins. And that's how they have such incredible longevity, despite a very high metabolic rate, because they're just, they're all their mitochondria are protected. And if you like the mitochondrial damage theory of aging and the mitochondrial dysfunction theory of aging and the mitochondrial dysfunction theory of cancer, which I go into, then boy, do we want to, you know, not damage our mitochondria. And one of the easy ways is to tell them to uncouple themselves and make more buddies to pull the sled. And, and this is where the title, the longevity paradox 2.0 comes in. And, Correct. you know, I do want to just clarify for our listeners because, you know, the term oxidative stress is thrown out a lot, but I always find a lot of people don't know what it means or what it is. So all of our mitochondria is damaged by oxidative stress on a daily basis. I mean, every minute, every second, Correct. what would you say, Dr. Grundy are the top, you know, most common forms of oxidative stress that are affecting people's mitochondria, just so they can, you know, if they're listening and thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm fairly healthy. This may not apply to me. It's oxidative stress is everywhere. So what would you say are the most common uh, sources? Well, I think an, another way to answer that question is we know that uh, oxygen is incredibly damaging to mitochondria. Uh, and it's weird because we have to have oxygen to make ATP, our design. And yet it's can't live with it and can't live without it. So oxygen is, makes us rust, if you will. And so the, the more 
oxygen that's involved in making ATP, the more our mitochondria become damaged. Now, we have, believe it or not, only two antioxidants in our mitochondria. So it's only melatonin, the quote, sleep hormone. And believe it or not, folks, it's not a sleep hormone. And it's a mitochondrial repair hormone. And number two, glutathione. And none of the other antioxidants have anything to do with oxidative stress, have anything to do with helping mitochondria. So just, you know, sorry, just forget all that. That's, um, that theory was, you know, thrown out the window 30 years ago. Sorry. Uh, there's only two antioxidants in mitochondria. Now, here's the best part. Uh, plants have their own mitochondria that are called chloroplasts. And plants are basically mitochondria in reverse. They take carbon dioxide and they take sunlight photons and they convert that into oxygen and glucose. So exactly the opposite effect. Photons, sunlight, is that oxygen to plant mitochondria. It damages plant mitochondria, the chloroplast. And it's like, wait a minute, plants have to have sunlight to make energy. Yeah, but the sunlight damages them. So plants have a antioxidant system called polyphenols. There's that word phenols. And they produce these brightly colored uh, compounds polyphenols. Um, how do we know they're there? Because every fall when the green chlorophyll disappears from the leaves, all the plants turn brilliant yellows and reds and oranges and purples. And those are the polyphenols that have been hidden by the green chlorophyll. So plants use polyphenols to uncouple their chloroplasts, their mitochondria, to prevent the damage from sunlight. And what's so fascinating is when we eat polyphenol-rich plants or plant compounds, we get the benefit of those uncoupling compounds for our mitochondria. And I find myself singing um, the Circle of Life song from Disney's The Lion King. Um, for those of you who remember it, you know, oh, we eat plants and then we die and, you know, then the plants eat us. And it's really kind of cool that plants protect themselves from sunlight with polyphenols and we protect ourselves from oxygen with polyphenols. It's so fascinating. And I'm glad because I wanted to go into, you know, what are some of these ways we can unlock this mitochondrial uncoupling and polyphenols is one of them. What would you say, Dr. Gundry, just like, what are your favorite top polyphenol rich foods that you try to get in most states? Well, as you know, I guess I'm famous for saying the only purpose of food is to get olive oil into your mouth. Um, and I, you know, I, and I say that, you know, not really joking because we we know that two of the blue zones where people have long lives they have a liter of olive oil per week uh, that's about 10 to 12 tablespoons of olive oil a day and it's not the oil in olive oil that's so remarkable it's actually the polyphenol content of olive oil 
There's a very famous uh, study in Spain called the Predimed study with people with known uh, heart disease who had had a heart attack at age 65. People were randomized to a liter of olive oil per week with a Mediterranean diet versus a low fat olive oil, uh, a low fat Mediterranean diet. And they were followed for five years. The people on the olive oil group, and they literally had to bring their container back to the clinic once a week to get it refilled. So they, they knew that they were using it. The people on the low, low fat diet uh, had a 30% increase in coronary artery disease in five, five years, new stroke, new heart attack, new stent. They had a decreased memory after five years, which makes sense. They're now 70, not 65. The olive oil group had a 30% reduction in heart disease, heart attacks, strokes, and they actually improved their memory over the course of five years. It's like, wow, you know, just by getting some polyphenols into you. Why? Because it actually makes your mitochondria less damaged and more efficient. And it's like, wow, why wouldn't I want to get that in me? Yeah, no, I, I went to culinary school in Calabria, Italy. So you're ah. speaking my language with olive oil, but I'm curious with that. So you also want to get a high quality olive oil. Absolutely. Um, and, in, you know, an easy trick too is to pop it. And if you have any other tricks, but to pop it in the fridge and see if it solidifies or not, if it solidifies, if it does, well, it's more so if it doesn't solidify, that is not a high quality olive oil, but I'm curious too, with the heating of it, does that destroy the polyphenols? Not no. at all. In okay. fact, believe it or not, uh, olive oil is the least oxidizable oil there is, far less than avocado and coconut oil. It has a high smoke point. Now, that has nothing to do with oxidation. People go, oh, yes, it's smoking, it's oxidizing. No, those are the particulate matter in olive oil that smokes early. So, People have been cooking with olive oil for 5,000 years, um, number one. Uh, number two, it doesn't destroy the polyphenols. Uh, I think, and I do uh, olive oil tasting throughout Italy and France and Morocco, and you, we sit there and gargle it. And uh, if you're not coughing violently, uh, it doesn't have enough polyphenols, quite frankly. It's supposed to be a little like spicy. When you have yeah, a really good olive oil, it's supposed it to, when make it you hits your throat, you're like. <laughs> and, and you know, my, my olive oil at Gundry MD has actually 30 times more polyphenol than any uh, olive oil that's ever been, uh, ever been tested. Oh, well, I'm going to have to check that out. 30 times. We'll, ha <laughs> we'll have to get you some. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That and it comes great. from Morocco. And the amazing thing is this, the, the farmer, uh, was a, is a wine snob, and he knew that great wines, uh, the vines are stressed, they're planted high, closer to the sun, and they're underwater, and they're planted in rocks. And he says, gee, you know, I think we could do the same thing with olives. And so he actually got his father to let him plant a grove of olive trees right next to each other, like in rows, like vines, and they planted them in rocks in the Moroccan desert. Uh, high up in the mountains, the Atlas Mountains, and underwatered them. And when he harvested the first crop, his father said, ah, you know, this is horrible. This is, this is awful. And you, you failed, you know, you idiot. It's a great story. Um, 
and he, so he takes it down to the local olive oil tester and he says, no, this is extra virgin olive oil. You know, it's, it qualifies for acidity. He says, but this is really interesting stuff. Would you mind letting us send it to the Paris lab that, you know, tests all the French olive oils? And he said, yeah. So the guy calls him up. He says, hey, are you the guy with the olive oil from Morocco? He said, yeah. He says, what the heck are you doing? He says, there's you know, there's 30 times more polyphenols than we've ever measured. And so he goes, well, this is what I've done. He said, you know, oh, of course. Uh, and so he goes back to his father and he says, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I did it. And his dad said, okay, smart guy, you know, who's going to buy it? So just by luck, he had heard of me and he actually did a cold call to me saying, hey, would you be interested, you know, in high polyphenol olive oil? Would I? So I, you know, I got on the plane and checked the guy out and it was love at first sight. Oh my gosh, that's an amazing story. I'm so glad we stumbled upon that. Um, Well, yes, I will be checking out that olive oil. So, all right. So we talked about polyphenols as the first way to unlock and, you know, we're not going to get through all the steps. We'll have to read the book for that, but there are a few others I want to touch on intermittent fasting. Correct. Um, what are your recommendations? And I'm curious to Dr. Gundry for women and men, are they the same or because there is some research that men do better than women on a, you know, they can go longer without eating, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Well, here's, here's the bad news in general. If, um, our mitochondria to produce ATP should be able to switch on a dime from using sugar to produce ATP to using free fatty acids, fats to produce ATP. So that when sugar runs out, when we stop eating and our glycogen stores go down, uh, we should instantly be able to release fat from fat stores, our our hybrid battery, if you will, and begin using fat as uh, a fuel substrate. 50% of normal weight individuals are unable to do that. They have no flexibility in their mitochondria. 88% of overweight individuals have no metabolic flexibility. And 99.5% of obese individuals have no metabolic flexibility, cannot make that switch. So to get back to your question, uh, what's amazing to me is the number of normal weight people that I see who literally can't make that switch. Uh, Now, in terms, the only people who I really recommend not to do a lot of intermittent fasting are women who want to get pregnant. And there's a really good reason for that. Uh, You... You ladies have to have a minimum amount of fat to, if you get pregnant today, you got to carry that baby to term if the famine starts tomorrow and you don't have anything to eat for nine months. And it's remarkable how important that base amount of fat is. You literally will not ovulate and pop an egg if you don't have fat stores. Similarly, if you if your genome thinks that times are rough and that 
the food is sketchy, then it's going, I'm not going to waste an egg. Uh, that's ridiculous. I'll wait till times are better. And I take care of a number of um, fem female athletes who uh, are very thin and cannot get pregnant. And I forcibly make them gain 10 pounds, you know, against their wishes. And boom, uh, yep. you know, they get pregnant. They go, what I, the heck? I'm right there with you. I can't tell you how many clients I've had who are doing everything to improve their fertility. But the one thing they're missing is that 5% weight increase. And we do, we want it to be a little cushion. We want it to be a little extra fat. And then it's like clockwork, pregnant, you know, within a few months. Yeah. And it's, it's the one part, but nobody thinks about it because who's going to want to believe that, you know, gaining a little weight. So I'm glad you brought that up though, that that is the one population you would not recommend it for. Right. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, great apes, and we're a great ape, uh, only gain weight during fruit season. And apes gain about five to eight pounds every fruit season. And fruit does not ripen year-round in the jungle, folks. It only ripens in one season. And orangutans, which is really interesting, uh, female orangutans don't go into heat, don't have an estrus cycle until right after fruit season when they've gained about eight pounds. And then, you know, they go into heat and because now they got the eight pounds to, to carry the baby. I mean, it's just, so it's, interesting. it's such a great design and we just, you know, come on, let's quit messing with it. I know, stop design. messing with it. Yeah. Um, okay. So in terms of intermittent fasting, besides, right. If you're, if you're trying to get pregnant or pregnant, let's avoid doing intermittent fasting, but what would you recommend for women and men? And is it the same? Well, so it depends on, you know, what we're looking for. Um, one of the really interesting things about intermittent fasting is, um, as a general longevity plan, calorie restriction, reducing 30% of the calories you eat every day has worked as really the ultimate longevity tool in all animals study, uh, except for rhesus monkeys, where there were two competing studies that I've written about before from University of Wisconsin and the National Institutes of Aging. Um, there was a researcher at the NIH who I talk about uh, Raphael de Cabo, who said, you know, I think we're missing something about calorie restriction. Because in calorie restriction, we researchers are controlling what the animal eats and really what time the animal eats, what time the food goes out. And he says, if you think about it, if you get 30% less calories and the food arrives once a day, you're really hungry when that food arrives. And the odds are you're going to eat that food very quickly, as opposed to if you get plenty of calories, you're you know, probably going to nibble on it for quite a while. And so he did these cool experiments at the NIH that basically controlled the time of day of when these animals, rats, got these calories. And he found that if rats got to eat 24 hours a day, um, they didn't have any metabolic flexibility, interestingly enough. But if they put the food out at three o'clock in the afternoon, the rats would eat all their food in about eight to 12 hours, and then they'd be fasting the rest of the time. Mm 
And then they compared those to rats who got 20, 30% less food. And lo and behold, only the calorie-restricted rats or the time-restricted rats had metabolic flexibility, number one. And number two, the rats who got a full day serving but had to eat it in a quicker time period had an 11% longevity benefit, which would translate in human years to 10 good years additional, uh, which is, you know, that, that'd be okay with me. And then the, the Italian athlete study that I talk about in the book, I think is the most striking because it's a human study. And they took Italian cyclists and they put them on a training table. So they all had to eat the exact same food. And they were on this training table for three months. The only difference was one group of athletes, they all ate three meals a day. One group had breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning, had lunch at one o'clock in the afternoon, and they had to finish dinner at eight o'clock at night, a 12-hour eating window. The other group, breakfast, break fast, was at one o'clock in the afternoon. They had lunch at four o'clock in the afternoon, and they had to finish dinner at eight o'clock a seven-hour eating window, three months. Only the group that had the seven-hour window lost weight. The eight and the 12-hour window didn't lose any weight. Same amount of food, same calories. The group, they both had great athletic performance. Neither of them diminished their athletic performance, but the seven-hour eating window had a dramatic drop in insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1. And that's our best current way of measuring uh, mTOR activation, uh, the mammalian target of rapamycin. And it's the best way in my clinic for looking at you know, longevity. Uh, how do we know that? We know that super old people tend to run low insulin-like growth factors. And people with cancer, as a general rule, often have high insulin-like growth factors. So why not compress your eating window and, you know, get all these really cool benefits. Have you now, found the same Dr. Gundry for your female patients? Yes. Okay. That's good to know. And at, yeah. di at like different stages of life. At any stage. Um, yeah. At, at any stage you, so there's, there's three manipulable things for lowering insulin-like growth factor. One is the amount of sugars or things that turn into sugar you eat. Two is the amount of animal protein you eat. And even a fish is an animal, even an egg is an animal. And number three is time-restricted eating, uh, compressing the eating window. They're all three manipulable var variables. And just as a funny aside, I'm, I'm a good friend with one of the carnivore gurus. And you know, he credits me with being the father of the carnivore diet because it's the ultimate elimina lectin elimination diet. And uh, that's another subject, but anyhow, and he runs a fairly low insulin-like growth factor. And he says, yeah, yeah, you know, I have a low insulin-like growth factor and that destroys your theory that animal protein raises it. Well, what he doesn't tell anybody is that he does an OMAD diet. He only eats one meal a day. So of course he can have a low insulin-like growth factor and eat all that animal protein, but he really ought to tell people that he's, you know, manipulating the, 
the, the data. <laughs> yeah, not too many people have a have a full disclosure. Well, I know, Dr. Gundry, that we, you know, we have our last 15 minutes. So I want to make the best use of them. And I'm curious because I think when a lot of people read the title of the book, they're like, less deprivation, keto, like that sounds great. So there are many other ways to unlock this mitochondria uncoupling that you go, you know, you dive deep in. We you talk about prebiotics, um, fermented foods, and apple cider vinegar. Um, and I'm so glad you brought up melatonin too, because that is always the one thing. I'm like, it's an antioxidant first. <laughs> so, you know, you dive into a lot of that, but I'm curious what are those factors and what are those foods that we can eat that are a part of your plan that bring out that less deprivation in terms of a true keto diet? Yeah. So this actually, um, when I really wanted to understand, you know, where the ketogenic diet came from. And so I went back to the uh, seizure literature and once anti-seizure medications were found, the ketogenic diet for kids pretty much fell by the wayside. But it had a resurgence in the 90s because a lot of these kids, uh, yeah, maybe their seizures were controlled, but it was clear their brains weren't operating very well. I mean, these, th- these medications really suppress you know, your brain function. So people said, well, wait a minute. Uh, MCT oil, medium chain triglycerides, uh, can actually produce ketones without being on a ketogenic diet. You can, MCTs are unique little fats that are absorbed directly through the wall of the gut. They go right to the liver and the liver converts them into ketones. And so with this kid diet, they said, hey, if we just have kids eat MCT oils, drink them, mix it with olive oil, put it in their salad dressings, pour it on their food. It's flavorless. Maybe we can give these kids a whole lot more carbohydrates and a whole lot more proteins. And lo and behold, that's exactly what they found. And they still got the benefits of seizure control. And so I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then I, you know, I looked at my books and MCT oil has been a part of my ketogenic program uh, in, in all my books. And I'm going, well, yeah, I know it makes ketones, but I didn't realize that. And I, I've got a lot of carbohydrates in, in my program. And I'm going, well, no wonder this works. So the next thing I go is, hmm, wonder where else MCTs are. Well, it turns out that MCTs are short chain carbon atoms, and they're named, most of them are named after the Latin word for goat, capra, capric acid, caprylic acid, and so forth. Why would they be named after a goat? It turns out that goat milk, 30% of the fats are medium chain triglycerides. Same with sheep, not true of cow, same with water buffalo and fun aside, same with donkeys, but there's not a lot of donkey milk. Um, And so now you go, gee, I could have goat yogurt. I could have sheep yogurt. I could have goat kefir or sheep kefir. I could have goat cheese and I could have sheep cheese and I'll uncouple my mitochondria by making ketones out of food I like. 
So why not have some, you know, goat yogurt and stir in some polyphenol powder, um, maybe put in Gundry Vital Reds, which are pure polyphenols, or what I do is reverse juice. I take a bunch of organic berries, put them through a juicer, throw the juice away. It's pure sugar, folks. And I take the pulp and I mix the pulp in the yogurt. Let's have a cappuccino. Put some goat yogurt or some goat cheese along with MCT oil in a blender with coffee, and you'll have a cappuccino. And you can uncouple your mitochondria. What fun! I love that. So, and and I know you said more carbohydrates, specifically even with your patients. What are some of those carbohydrates that people could be more flexible with? Yeah. So, what we really want to do when we carbohydrates is we don't want to eat carbohydrates for us. We want to eat soluble fibers that our gut bacteria are going to use. And they're going to use those to make a series of short chain fatty acids uh, like butyrate, uh, like propionate, like acetate, acetic acid, which is vinegar, which lo and behold, also uncouple mitochondria. And here's a fun fact, apple cider vinegar makes you lose weight, not because of some magical, mystical thing or not letting your stomach. It turns out that acetic acid, uh, apple cider vinegar, uncouples mitochondria. And so what the heck, you know, have some vinegar, have fermented foods. And it turns out the fermented foods, it's not the probiotics, folks. It's the fact that fermented foods actually have all these short chain fatty acids that you're eating when you eat them. So fascinating. Okay. Final question, Dr. Grunger. I'm just curious. And I know you said you were just telling us about if you're having some goat's milk yogurt or sheep's milk yogurt, you'll do the reverse juicing. But based on all this research, what are some changes that you've made to your daily diet or have just put more emphasis on from your findings? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, Number one is uh, my wife and I now before dinner have a generous handful of raw pistachios because folks, pistachios have the highest content of melatonin of any food, higher than anything. And we try to get a lot of melatonin-containing foods in our diet. Coffee has melatonin. Olive oil has melatonin. Red wine has melatonin. So, and I have a whole list of where these things are, but pistachios are number one. And melatonin is the ultimate mitochondrial antioxidant. Number two, believe it or not, we have a nice piece of goat or sheep cheese um, right before dinner. And I mean, those are two easy, fun things to do. It sounds lovely. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) who knew, right? So it's, it's really, you do not have to deprive yourself to get all the benefits of what we thought was what a ketogenic diet was going to do, you know, without the misery. And yeah, well, it's so fascinating and I can't encourage people enough to go buy your book. Um, and just 
I love how much further you dive into everything. And we really, you know, we got through maybe three ways to unlock, but there are a total of eight and so many other fascinating tips, which I love that we stumbled upon so many little stories, but I do have our final thing that we do on every podcast. Dr. Gundry is a quick rapid fire Q and a, so I have three questions for you. First thing that pops into your mind, and this just helps our listeners get to know you better on a personal level. What is your favorite de-stressing practice or tool? Uh, walking my dogs. Love it. Uh, coffee or tea? Both are great, but have your coffee black, preferably, or with MCT oil and goat cheese. Mixed How in. do you take yours? Uh, I actually take mine black. I have several cups of coffee in the morning, and then I switch over to five different teas that I drink throughout the day. Oh, I love it. Okay. This is my favorite question. What is your favorite home cooked meal? Well, I always say that my uh, last meal will be um, fried chicken, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it's got to be a pastured chicken, and it's very hard, actually, to get a pastured chicken, but I actually will give a shout out to a guest I had on the Dr. Gendry podcast, there is Farmer Dan from Texas, and he actually now sells lectin light chickens at lectinlight.com. I have no affiliation and he feeds his chickens. He, they're pastured, but he feeds them lectin free feed feed. Oh my God. That's and, amazing. And good for him. So yeah. there, there you go. I love it. Well, thank you so much again. I'm hoping we can connect again and good luck um, with the rest of your book tour. Well, thanks a lot. It's uh it's on the USA Today uh, top uh, books in the United States already. So we're really pleased with that. So, um, And I can attest that you can read it in one night and you will enjoy every moment. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, as you know, I try to write as if I'm sitting here talking to you. And uh, it's very entertaining. All of your books, Dr. Gundry, are very easy reads and you explain the science so well. So don't be intimidated if you're not a science junkie or in the profession, you will be able to get through it with ease. I want to encourage you to find at least two ways you can enhance mitochondrial uncoupling in your diet, whether that's adding in more polyphenol rich foods, practicing a form of intermittent fasting, or I know for me, I add Nordic Naturals prebiotic fiber to my morning matcha or coffee to start the day. Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can catch some of our episodes of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. If you want to know more about me, you can follow me on Instagram at livewellwithkate, where I typically live on my stories, providing a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Well is hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.